when we first started with the new compliance system late 2017, really it, it didn't work. I'd manifest some orders to go to like, for instance, to Spokane, which is four hours from Seattle. And I get to the stores in Spokane and I do everything that the compliance system says I needed to do, but I get to Spokane and they'd say, uh, you know, we haven't received the order on our end. Meaning, so before I leave Seattle, I put everything I'm making and I'm selling to the store in a manifest and I hit a little button that says transfer material. And this is all part of the compliance that we have to go through in a seed to sale compliance system. So I got to, made a four hour drive to Spokane and they just kind of look at me and they're looking at their computer and they say, we haven't received it yet. And so I wait, you know, I go have a coffee and I come back and they still haven't received it. So I'd have to go on back to Seattle without having made the delivery. Hi, I'm Danny. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to the Spend Culture Stories podcast, where we explore the connection between company spending and culture. Join us as we dive deep into understanding the people, processes, and tools that make up spend as a whole, or what we call spend culture. Hey, this is Danny, and welcome to another episode of Spend Culture Stories, uh, the monthly cannabis segment. So today I have two special guests here. We have Ashton Fillion. He is a technological consultant for cannabis businesses. And we also have Scott Burdell. He is the CEO, co-founder of Stripes. Welcome, guys. Hey, thanks a lot, Danny. Hi, Danny. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to hear from you, Scott, because I know we've been talking to a few uh, Washington cannabis business owners. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about your career history and how you got into the cannabis industry. My professional career uh, was primarily in the, in, in the realm of finance. I started off in Chicago at uh, working at Chicago Mercantile Exchange for a couple of years. And then I moved to Montreal to work at uh, Le Bourse de Montréal, which is, uh, was a little local uh, futures exchange up there in Montreal, where we traded mostly Canadian derivatives and stocks and options. The finance uh, worked well for me up until about 2011, 2012, and the finance kind of stopped working. I was trading mostly or entirely trading, and the trade kind of dried up. And I had a brother who was licensed in New Mexico, and he'd been licensed since 2009, and he had expressed a desire for a little bit of help. So after looking around Canada and U.S. for jobs in finance, I, I really felt that it was in my best interest to begin a career in cannabis because I thought there'd be a tremendous amount of growth. So I went down to New Mexico and, and worked with my brother for two years. And New Mexico is interesting and a bit like Canada in that if you're licensed in New Mexico, it's, it's vertical integration. You, with one license, you grow, you process, and you sell. So I worked with him, got a good understanding of the industry. And also another aspect of New Mexico is, is that it was and is currently uh, medical only. So you know, got a feel for the industry, tried to learn the ins and outs. And then after two years with my brother, and uh, my brother's still doing great down in New Mexico. His business is called Sacred Garden. I think he has four stores and he, he's really killing it down there. I, I moved up to Seattle in late 2014. I just hopped in my forerunner and drove up and couch surfed with some 
my two friends up here until I started a business. You know, I found a license and joined with some people who had a license and uh, you know, we started uh, making things. And the license I have in Washington state is called a processor's license. So what I do is I procure or, or buy wholesale from growers who are called producers. I make products and then I sell them to stores. So that's what I've been doing here in Washington since late 2014. That's really interesting. And, and um, in terms of your financial background, did you find it to be easy transition for you to go from the kind of the corporate finance, the trading side into the cannabis industry? Because it's uh, it sounds like quite a transition for you. A bit. But when I was trading, I had eight screens and two computers. And, and there's a lot of uh, information that you have to uh, go through or just use when you trade. And I guess the one thing that I, I found that's really helped me from the finance trading days is the, I, I learned the ability to pick up on trends and not necessarily a trend as it's in its trend phase, but, but that point at which things kind of change. You have to be aware of changes in the market and, and be able to adapt and really not and. You just have to be able to adapt because in this industry, especially in Washington State, you're seeing quantum shifts in the market every three to four months. And unless you're able to kind of maneuver your company to take advantage of those changes, you'll be dead in the water, really. Yeah. So I guess talking about those sort of policy changes, what are some of the trends that you've noticed over the past couple of years in terms of how the regulatory structure has been adapting and, and, and changing kind of as you've been establishing your business? One of the bigger things you have to worry about is changes in laws. And those aren't, they're not going to come, fortunately, just out of nowhere. As long as you're a member of an industry group or uh, unless you pay attention to what bills are going through the state, house and Senate at any given time, you're going to have a little bit of a heads up. But, you know, like at the beginning of this year, there are some big packaging changes that would have had a huge negative effect on the edibles market here. And actually, if those changes had gone through, I imagine 30 to 40 percent of the companies, the processors would have probably gone out of business. Wow. And that was a tricky one. I mean, here the laws are pretty clear. You're not supposed to make edibles in bright colors and certain shapes, but it was a rule that that really wasn't enforced. So you had a lot of processors who were making a lot of really good edibles, but they were brightly colored and they were in the wrong shapes. And, you know, the state said, nope, can't do that. Uh, they got to be <laughs> black, I guess, or gray, no bright colors. And there was a bit of an uproar. And so the state kind of backed off and reevaluated. And that was a big one. And also at the beginning of uh, 2018, the state switched compliance systems on us. We went from one to another. And that was a huge challenge because the current system is kind of tricky and doesn't really work that well. So when we first started with the new compliance system, late 2017, really it, it didn't work. I'd manifest some orders to go to like, for instance, to Spokane, which is four hours from Seattle. And I get to the stores in Spokane and I do everything that the compliance system says I needed to do. But I get to Spokane and they'd say, uh, you know, we haven't received the order on our end. Meaning so before I leave Seattle, I put everything I'm making and I'm selling to the store in a manifest. And I hit a little button that says transfer material. 
And this is all part of the compliance that we have to go through in a seed to sale compliance system. So I got to, made a four hour drive to Spokane and they just kind of look at me and they're looking at their computer and they say, we haven't received it yet. And so I wait, you know, I go have a coffee, I come back and they still haven't received it. So I'd have to go on back to Seattle without having made the delivery. That's far from ideal, obviously. That's brutal. Yeah. Uh, it takes a lot of time. And then, you know, you have a whole day lost with no revenue to account for. So out of curiosity, because you said that there was there was two systems in the past, kind of state-run systems. In Washington, are you mandated to, to use the actual state system or can you go ahead and use your own seat-to-sale program, essentially? We're mandated to use the state system, but the state system... For lack of a better word, let's just call it clunky. And it's difficult to maneuver through unless you're very, very computer literate. So there are a lot of uh, companies uh, that have layover systems that we use. I, I honestly don't think anyone in the state uses the state mandated system only. Okay. It's difficult, it's challenging, and there are a number of issues. So I really believe that everyone uses uh, a layover uh, there's a better word for it than layover system, but but it's a system that does the same functions. It, it just makes it significantly more uh, user-friendly. Are you referring to, to companies like GreenBit and things like that? Well, well GreenBit's a point-of-sale system. So GreenBit's going to be used in stores. And, and GreenBit's uh, has, I don't know, I think they have about 30% of the market. But there are a number of others. The one I use in particular is called Mr. Kraken. I like Mr. Kraken. There are others, Dauntless, uh, which has Traceweed. There are a bunch of them. Growflow, you choose one, you look at it. Each one of them will give you a, a month-long test run to see if it works for you, if it works for your company well. Because, you know, some of them are, are designed a little bit more with uh, producers or growers in mind, and some of them are designed a little bit more with processors in mind. So you got to see what functionality suits you best. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you said you do a lot of wholesale purchasing of cannabis for your processing. Is that something that you need to put through your, I guess you said you're using Kraken, your Kraken interface? or Kraken? Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, it's state compliance system. And I, I think it's this way with every state in the cannabis industry, because with the federal laws being the way they are, that uh, cannabis is still a Schedule One substance, uh, the federal government looks at it as illegal. Every state that wants to participate in this industry more or less wants to demonstrate to the federal government that, hey, this can be done on a responsible level. And one of the ways we're going to show the federal government that this is being done responsibly is by literally tracking every plant from, at least in the state of Washington, every plant has to be tagged. I believe at the point at which it, it becomes eight inches, and then all the material produced by that plant has to be traced from the grower to the processor to the store, and then to the final sale to the end consumer. So yeah, when I buy uh, wholesale... I'll be in touch with a farm that I'm familiar with. I'll give them an order. They have to enter that order into the state system through their overlay system. And uh, it's called manifesting it. And then they transfer it to me. And then um, I receive the material, I weigh it, and then I go into my system and I receive the material. So it, it comes up in Mr. Kraken, which is my compliance system. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned a lot of the order side of things. So I just want to kind of trace your uh, 
experience back to when you were the CFO at Sacred Garden. I'm really curious on hearing on the purchasing side, how does cannabis businesses usually manage purchase approvals and processes for procurement? Because you mentioned some of the direct costs and also direct materials, you kind of move along the compliance system. So what about like the indirect in, in New Mexico, when, when I was working at uh, Sacred Garden, we ordered really based on need. You know, that function of procurement as a department in and of its own, I'm only now beginning to see in Washington. Most of these businesses are really quite small. There aren't that many that are so, so big that they need a department or an individual devoted to procurement. So after saying that, New Mexico, it was kind of on a need basis. But if you're doing your job properly as a CFO, you try and predict that, right? You see what your needs are and then try and uh, project what you're going to need, whether it's nutrients for plants, uh, packaging material, or just try and one real tricky thing that I absolutely haven't mastered even now that I'm uh, with Stripes up here in, in Seattle is trying to predict what your customer's are going to be needing in the future or not needing, but wanting. Every time I make a big purchase in cannabis, I'm trying to do it based on the current consumption trends are. But for some reason, right when you get to that point of comfort and confidence in that prediction, when you make that big purchase, it seems like uh, consumer tastes have changed. Yeah. The forecasting kind of speculation aspect is probably not, not the easiest a lot of the retailers we we, uh, we talk with say that a large proportion of their purchasing is actual cannabis. As a processor, how would you say your, your spending is divided between cannabis and, and some of the other uh, inputs that you, you put into your actual products? Because it's so competitive here, cannabis is probably, I want to say 70% of what I purchase. Otherwise, it's there's a little bit of cannabis extract, but I'm going to include that in that 70%. Otherwise, it's it's packaging materials and things of that nature, packaging, cones, anything that goes into the end product. What you really have to pay attention to is not making purchases that aren't directly related to revenue creation. Right, you know, yeah. You can't go buy... Uh, shiny, uh, pretty things uh, that might make your office look very good or even have to be very diligent when it comes to marketing. You don't want to spend a lot of money on marketing that isn't going to be... And, and it's hard. Marketing is always kind of tricky because you want your marketing dollar to go to that which will you know increase your revenue stream. You're going to do your purchasing directly for cannabis, which is going to be what you're selling and or packaging materials. And if not those things, the third thing is buying things that increase your productivity. So all in all, you know, especially because this is a new industry, you have to focus on those things which will help and or increase revenue creation. I mean, it's great to hear. It sounds like you're very disciplined in your approach to, to spending. I mean, focusing on, on purely the revenue generating uh, expenses, I think is, is a good way to start managing the, uh, your, your company like that. But when, when it comes to the other 30%, are you using any other sort of systems to process those types of uh, expenditures? Have you noticed that either your company or, or, or others in the industry have been moving towards whether it's ERPs, I guess you're probably before that stage, but any other sort of software to manage that side of the business as well? I'm beginning to see that in some of the larger companies. And when I say see that, there are a lot of industry gatherings, networking events, and so on and so forth. So 
we'll get together and talk and say, hey, what are you doing for this? Or how do you solve this issue and procurement and purchasing? And even on that other 30%, I personally feel that the industry is only now, at least in the United States, beginning to use software or ERPs for that particular function. The time is ripe right now. I, I feel in Canada, the way the industry was set up, you, you have a lot more players who are much more mature, let's say, and would be able to uh, adopt something like that. But still, I think in the United States, probably 70, 80% of these businesses are pretty small. And small businesses, it's going to be hard to justify spending money on, again, something, like I said earlier, that isn't directly uh, related to revenue. But that being said, you know, if it is something that I or someone else uh, in the lower end of sales or, or a smaller company can use that would, you know, by using this tool, does it free me up enough so that I can devote my time and energy to things that would do better? And does this tool, if I use this tool, will it, it basically give me a, you know, I need a 45, 50% return on that tool. If I'm going to spend $1,000 for it, I, I need it to create at least $1,500 of value for me. Is that making sense? Yeah, that makes complete sense, Scott. A lot of the business we talk to in, in Washington, at least, uh, as, as you mentioned, are smaller relative to Canada. In terms of how they're currently managed, do you think there's any impediments to them being able to scale, whether it is these uh, not necessarily having the right systems in place or, or from any other standpoint that you have a, a perspective on? It's tough to say things are so competitive here in the state of Washington. And also the failure rate here is quite high. So I guess we've been doing business on the rec side for about four years, uh, four and a half years now. Impediments. I don't want to say this is an impediment, but I think the primary goal is, is survival. So if, if there's a compelling argument, that can be made, say, hey, I do have a system for that will free up your hands, uh, give you an extra 20% of time. And if you use this system for each dollar you spend, uh, you're basically going to have a buck and a half. And that's generous. I know a lot of people who won't even consider that kind of deal un unless it gives them a 100% return. Well, you know, what I'm trying to say is it's becoming very crowded in, in terms of things I can pick up that will improve my productivity or, or the overall performance of my business. But I do feel that procurement does have a future in the industry. And now is a time when things like that need to be introduced to the industry in order for them to take hold. I guess my point is it will happen. You need to be there front and center in, in people's faces and saying, hey, I have something for you that will work, that will help. Use it. Yeah, totally. I think what you mentioned here, how the industry is now maturing, there's like a ripe entrance for a lot of like these retailers and vendors to kind of educate the market a little bit as they scale. Because, you know, in Canada, we have like the giants like Aurora Cannabis and Canopy. So, you know, these guys, they have financial backing. They have a very mature CFO team. They understand how to integrate the processes along with technology and also how to bring it across our organization. So I think the U.S. is definitely going to start seeing that in the future as more states go towards legalization. So really great point there you brought up. A question that I have for you is something that you mentioned a little bit earlier on. You mentioned that there are some events that you go to exchange knowledge with your peers. What are some events that you would recommend uh, for cannabis business owners to learn? What are some of the tools that they should be able to use or, you know, some lessons that they can learn in order to grow their business? I think it's in your best interest uh, 
if you're in the business in Washington State, you really need to join one of the industry groups. Like, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm currently a member of uh, the Cannabis Alliance. There's there are others. There's WACA. A couple others uh, that don't really come to mind. Those are significant in that they're both very present in terms of paying attention to bills that are being evaluated for becoming laws. And they both have networking events. And then there are also uh, big parties that some of the big processors throw for new products and things like that. But you really have to get out there. Running these businesses requires an insane amount of time and energy and effort. But unless you're constantly talking to others and networking, you kind of have your head in the sand. And really, Danny, you have to get out there and meet these people. And they're not always willing to talk to you <laughs> because sometimes these are things that they've discovered through their own hard work, sweat and blood. They're, they're ways uh, that they found to do things. It gives them a bit of a competitive advantage. And, and then along with competitive advantage, it means that they will have a greater chance of survival. I can't underscore that enough, really. You know, it's great to make a profit, of course, and, and please don't laugh at that. But really, the game in this state and any state that has a system like this in which it isn't vertically integrated, survival is going to be the first and foremost game. But, you know, you're asking about scalability, and that's just something I'm kind of trying to figure out myself right now. Each incremental step in sales, say, like I remember when I was thrilled to death at the beginning that I had $8,000 sales in one month. And then a year later, my big point was about 22. And then about eight months later, I hit 36. And it was very clunky. I stumbled through the whole process and I, and I didn't do it well. Scaling is very hard. I think you, you come to a, a kind of a chicken or egg issue. Uh, what comes first? Do you buy a ton of product in the expectation that you will grow? Or do you hire a bunch of people so you have the labor force? Or, or do you just kind of wait until sales get to that point where you're scratching your head and thinking, wow, you know, I have to change things in order to meet this new demand. I tried just buying a bunch of material and that wasn't really the right route. And then when I figured that wasn't quite right, so, you know, I hired a couple of people full time. And, and then I just had a lot of uh, labor costs. And I didn't necessarily have the order flow to match my labor costs, which was horrible. But now, you know, I've, I've been looking at all these other ways and I'm noticing that my sales are creeping up. So I've been trying to figure out the scaling thing. There are obviously a number of different possible ways to do it. But the key thing is in, in this and any business, you know, like, how do I do this right and without it uh, killing me? A lot of the companies we talk to also go through the kind of the, the trial and error sort of experimentation phase. Um, and as you said, with, with the priority of purely surviving. With your experience, what do you say are some of the more common financial mistakes you see retailers and processors uh, making across the, uh, the Washington landscape? That's an interesting question. Uh, there are a couple of interesting things. The one thing I, I've seen here and that I also saw in New Mexico was, you know, when anyone starts reading about CBD and wondering if this is right and true, I mean, this is really a substance that's kind of makes you feel good and is quite good for you and can be used kind of on a recreational basis, then you start thinking, everyone's going to want this stuff. As far back, I remember in 2013, a couple of the licensees in New Mexico informed themselves or came across articles and started doing research on CBD. And they went to their grow 
and allocated like 50 or 60% of their growth to CBD plants. And they kind of jumped the gun back then. And even I've even seen farms doing that here right now, going big on CBD. And still the market's quite, not quite there. We're beginning to see it in a huge way now. But the CBD thing was uh, big, or, or there's been a constant kind of people trying to go big in CBD, but being a little too early. And so that's something I'm trying to figure out. Is, is now the right moment to go big in CBD? And might be, but, you know, you can do CBD without half needing to, and not in every state, but in, in a lot of states, you can do CBD stuff without having to go through the aggravation of having a cannabis license. And otherwise, you know, there are a lot of mistakes, especially in Washington. I don't want to call them mistakes, but you got to deal with 280E, which basically that's a tax provision because the federal government still looks at cannabis as a Schedule One substance, meaning it's illegal. So any costs we have as a cannabis business cannot be deducted from gross revenue. The only thing we can deduct from gross revenue are costs of goods sold. So when you're setting up these businesses, you need to try and tie in everything of your business into that cost of goods sold category, or you're just going to get killed on taxes. Yeah, I'm actually glad you brought that up. Um, I, I've actually been reading into that uh, quite a bit in terms of the cost of goods sold implication. Um, and it kind of leads me to my next question. Do you find there's still a, a heavy cash dependency within the industry? Um, because I, I know in terms of my reading, Due to some of the state's cash dependency, um, some some companies, I guess, have have been over-reporting costs of goods sold in the attempt to get around that uh, that regulation. Essentially, are you still finding that it's it's difficult to start working with banks, or uh, or are you are you still quite cash reliant? I I've never, and maybe it's because of my finance background. I haven't really ever had difficulty setting up an account with a bank. You know, the, the people who manage that are usually quiet about the banks that they are with. However, there are a lot of credit unions here that will work with cannabis companies, but it does cost a lot because the financial institution is required to more or less do a survey of your company on a monthly basis to make sure you're, you're doing everything properly. But the cash thing can work to your benefit if you do it right. But I think using cash to your benefit is probably not going to make the IRS happy. I mean, that benefit is not necessarily the most compliant thing you, you could be doing. I don't know if that makes any sense, but when you're dealing with a lot of cash, a lot of people just don't declare the cash. So they do avoid taxes that way. And that's why I say it's not necessarily the most compliant thing. And there are a lot of stores that do pay me in cash, but I, I deposit it. I'm not comfortable walking around $7,000 on me. And I, I'm not comfortable having it at home and I'm not comfortable having it in your business. People know that there's a huge uh, bullseye on your back. Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned this because the previous guest that we interviewed, he was saying uh, the cash is actually a huge problem in some dispensaries. Like he ran a dispensary and he was mentioning, um, you know, even in the basics when it comes to internal controls, like their employees, they would have like their dads over and he was saying, oh, they would just take the cash from the tills. So that's just you know, common sense when it comes to poor internal controls. So I guess as the industry matures, that's the things where you got to put policies and processes in place so that, you know, not just yourself as the business owner, but your employees also have a process to follow. 
Absolutely. You know, I've, I've known of small businesses before. Uh, you know, my grandmother worked in a catering business and she was the accountant and, you know, she would be incensed when the owner would come over and, and take all the cash out of the till. And that's just something that kind of happens from time to time in small businesses. They shouldn't, of course. And there are some things I've seen stores do, like in the stores that pay me cash, when I bring a shipment in, they have two people, basically. They have one person counting it, and then they have a second person who will distribute the cash so that there's an attempt at exerting control over those functions by kind of separating the functions. You know, they have one person doing one thing, and then another person who isn't involved in that one particular role will go take the manifest, take the invoice, go back to the safe and then count out the cash that's uh, meant to go to me. So that is one way I've seen uh, uh, stores trying to deal with that. But they still have a lot of cash and, you know, they'll have a big monster safe, but it's still kind of scary. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the concept that you're kind of touching on here, the attitude towards spending is uh, what we call spend culture. That's why we named the podcast the Spend Culture Stories podcast. So we believe that every person and also every business usually has a set of values that kind of influence how they choose to spend, manage, and invest their money. So I'm just curious from your perspective, how do you think the spend culture of cannabis is going to change in the next five years? That's a tricky question, Danny. I'm having such a hard time projecting anything three months down the line, five years, I'm terrified of. But the trends in the spend culture, first, I have to describe what it's like walking into a, a cannabis storage room. I've been in the industry for a little bit over five years. And when I go into storage still and into a room that, say, has 100 different strains uh, stacked in five five pound lots from floor to ceiling, uh, you know, you're absolutely like a kid in a candy shop. And you just want to say, I want that one, and I want that one, and I want that one, and I want that one. And then at the end, you have 50 pounds of cannabis, 10 different strains. And when, when you walked in there and you really only needed like two or three. Um, and <laughs> so um, uh, it, it would certainly be in the best interest um, to kind of separate that aspect, you know, not walk into that room or at least have, have your shopping list detailed properly. But, you know, going into the future pretty soon, you know, it's always been a four to five year thing. Um, like, well, and, and when I say four to five year thing, I, I mean that the timeline in which federal government will finally kind of come around to legalizing this. But, you know, I believe that will probably happen late 2019, if not early at the, you know, maybe 2020 at the latest. It, it's going to happen a lot sooner than everyone thinks. And when that happens, everything's going to change dramatically. That's one of the things that we need to be kind of trying to wrap our heads around. What is this going to look like? What is going to happen when the federal government legalizes? And I'm only now beginning to try and to plot that out and, and see how I need to navigate this business in order to take advantage of, of that happening. And I, I don't have a good answer. Uh, for your question, other than, you know, you just got to uh, sit down, write down on a piece of paper, uh, things that, that will happen. You know, like there'll be a lot more money coming in. Uh, we will finally have decent access to good regular banking, you might have access to small business loans. Otherwise, I don't have a good answer for that question just because the variability is, is tremendous. 
you know, the different possibilities are, are kind of mind boggling. It's a highly complex regulatory landscape. So, so, I mean, as you said, it is hard to really plan more than a couple months out. So we have time for one more question for you here, Scott. Just to finish us off here, what have you found to be the greatest learning experience thus far after transitioning into the cannabis industry from, from your, your finance background? I like that question, Ashton. When I came into the business, and I uh, preface this by saying my personal use of cannabis probably extends to late high school when I started trying it, and that was... 1982, and then you know frequent recreational use up until uh, up until current uh, up until now, and you know when when I first went down to New Mexico uh, to work for my brother, I was quite skeptical, and my skepticism was in due part to the stigma that has been attached to cannabis because it's been illegal for so long. But you know when I got to New Mexico, I was thinking. New Mexico, as I said earlier, is, is medical. I was down there and I was wondering whether I'd made the right decision temporarily moving away, moving away from my family to start a new career, new business. And I was thinking to myself when I first got to New Mexico, I was thinking, you know, these people just want to get high. <laughs> you know, these people are, are just getting a prescription for cannabis so they don't have to worry about getting busted with pot and they just want to get stoned. But after working there for about four or five months and actually working with patients, a lot of these people actually kind of need cannabis and not to get from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., but, you know, a lot of these people need cannabis to get from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. And that was significant. And when I really started kind of understanding that, um, it really opened my eyes up into, hey, you know, what I really thought was going to be a pretty big industry is actually going to be a hell of a lot bigger than I had originally thought. It made me... Uh, desire to get into it even more and more. What we see now, and people are only beginning to touch on on how big this is going to be. You know, I, I see projections all the time and I just kind of say, no, you know, I think it's going to be bigger. And what I'm saying is the biggest thing is how big this is actually going to be. It's going to be huge and it's not going to be huge because everyone just wants to get high. Uh, it's going to be huge because of the huge amount of things that can be achieved with cannabis. So thank you so much for speaking to us on this podcast, and we hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me. Have a good one, too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Spend Culture Stories podcast, sponsored by Procurify. If you'd like to learn more about your spend culture, take our quiz at spendculture.com.